And as they were going to the feast, and they were required, all the males were required three times a year to go to Jerusalem to worship. Uh, they were going to sacrifice, bring offerings, and to fellowship together. They sang these songs. They literally sang these songs. And so when you keep that in the back of your mind, it helps you to understand where they're coming from and to understand how to interpret them. As I was looking uh, this week at Memorial Day, um, in fact, as I have a question, you can answer out loud if you want. When was Memorial Day started or what was the purpose of Memorial Day? When did it start? Anybody know? Nope, not Independence Day. That's the 4th of July. It was, what was the original name of Memorial Day? Decoration, Decoration Day. That's exactly right. My grandpa, to the day he died, always called it Decoration Day. I never could figure out why because we always called it Memorial Day. But it was. It was started by those uh, right after the Civil War in memory of the Union soldiers that had died immediately, very shortly thereafter, those in the South also adopted that day to commemorate, commemorate the dead from the Southern states. Uh, if you don't know this, approximately 750,000 men died as a direct result of the war or indirect result of the war. Many of them died in prison camps and of disease and of their wounds that they had in battle. The bloodiest battle the United States has ever been a part of. And of course, it was on our own soil. And those um, who were mourning those dead began to decorate the grave sites of those who had died. And that's where Decoration Day came from. And of course, as you know today, it's not about the Civil War. It's about all of those who have died in defense of our country, in defense of the freedom that we so freely enjoy. As I was thinking about that, I realized the parables were really untold. Think about this. Someone or some ones died in our place. We didn't de die defending the freedom we have. Someone else did it for us. That's exactly what Jesus Christ has done for us. He died in our place. So we can not only have freedom, but we can have forgiveness. That's what we need. We've been singing about that. The second thing is a great sacrifice was required. A great sacrifice in a war of all people involved, but the ultimate sacrifice for those who died in defense of the country, in defense of freedom, and Jesus Christ gave the ultimate price. Think about this. While it's sad that anyone dies in any war, I don't know that anybody is pro-war. It's death destruction and misery but here's what happened Jesus Christ paid the ultimate sacrifice the ultimate price on our behalf see we deserve death because we're born sinners and we've lived that way Jesus Christ was not born a sinner and he didn't sin but he took our sins on himself and while he was taking our sins on himself and shedding his blood on the cross for us he cried out something that I cannot even start to fully understand. He said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What he realized at that moment is because of my sin and your sin, God, the Father, had to turn his back because he could not look on sin. 
but Jesus Christ being God in the flesh paid for that sin with his blood, with his life, and with his separation from God the Father. The ultimate sacrifice. Sacrifices involved in both of them. In our case, we honor the work, the sacrifice of someone else. Memorial Day does that. Other patriotic holidays do some of that also. But think about it. Every time we meet on a Sunday morning for a worship service or for a Bible study or for prayer meeting or whatever it is to fellowship with other Christians, we are indeed celebrating the work that Jesus Christ has done. Very specifically on a Sunday morning, we come on a Sunday morning. Why? Because it's convenient? It's the weekend? No. It's Sunday that makes it the first day of the week. Why? We celebrate not only the death and burial of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we celebrate his resurrection. See, the price was paid when he died on the cross. But it was confirmed that it was paid and accepted by God when he rose from the dead on the third day. Because if sin hadn't been completely paid for, remember, he took all our sin on himself. And if one sin in all the universe for all time had not been fully paid for, God could not have raised him from the dead. The resurrection proves that we have freedom and forgiveness available to us. Of course, you know if you've heard anything over the past years or you've read the Bible or heard someone else, that forgiveness is available to all people, but it's only appropriated to our lives when we, by an act of faith, recognize our sin and recognize that Jesus Christ is the Savior and ask Him to save us. That's salvation. That's being born again. That's new life. And then we begin to experience that. But we do celebrate that. And just think about this. Every week when we meet together, we are celebrating the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, His great sacrifice on our behalf. This is also something that cannot be repeated. You see, if someone has died for their country, they can't rise from the dead and go and die for our country again. It's a once-and-done event. Jesus Christ, once for all time, gave His life. It's not a repeated event. We can celebrate it, as I just mentioned, but it, the event itself is done. It's something in the past, and we celebrate what has happened. Of course, we regularly do observe that, and we do worship and celebrate. Next thing. You cannot repay the person who made the sacrifice. Try repaying a war widow. Say, we'll give you a million dollars. We'll give. No, I want my husband back. You can't repay an ultimate sacrifice of death. You can't pay anybody for that. We don't serve God or Jesus Christ to pay him back. If you think you are, you're a real miserable person because you're going to know every day you fall short because he is the one that suffered. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He gave his life. He went through all the suffering for us. By the way, the suffering of hanging on a cross and crown of thorns and being beaten, that's horrible. Horrible beyond human description. But there's something even worse than that. And that is him, the perfect sinless one, taking my sin and your sin on himself. 
and dying in that, for that. That is what, what is more horrible yet. But we can't repay him. We don't serve the Lord to repay Jesus Christ. We serve him because of what he's freely given to us. The forgiveness we have, the freedom we have, we turn around and in honor of what he has done for us, we serve him from the heart. We serve him from love and mercy and grace. That's why we serve. It's not a legalistic thing. We're not trying to pay God back because you cannot do that. That's like trying to put mud into muddy water to make it clean. It's not going to happen. We need to understand. We serve because we love. Remember, the person who was fighting on our behalf in a war, they chose to do that. I realize some died, they were drafted. But you know what? They could have done what they did when I was a teenager. They could have went to Canada. They could have refused to fight. But they made a choice that they would put their life on the line. Jesus Christ answered his father's call and said, I will go. I will become flesh. I will take on a body. I will live among them. And I will die in their place. He made a choice to do that. What a joy that is to know that somebody looked at me and said, that Paul Malfair, he's in need. I will do this for him. That's what Jesus Christ has done. Think about this. Memorial Day and what we celebrate as Christians shows us there's a greater cause. Most of the time, our causes are, I'm hungry, I'm bored, I'm sleepy, I want something. And, and that's what we live life for. That's down here someplace. There's a greater cause, a greater crusade. Jesus Christ says, sin and ministry in his name. The military says, with our life, there's a greater cause than just me. Most of the time, all we do is, how does it affect me? What's it do for me? How does it make me feel? But there's something worth fighting for. There's something worth dying for that's bigger than you and I. Yesterday, I went to a tractor pull, and I was getting dressed in the morning. I was rooting through my drawer, and I came up with a T-shirt that said, Freedom isn't free. And I said to my wife, this is the shirt for today. I don't normally do that kind of thing. But I'm like, I'm wearing this shirt today. Because you see, freedom is free to you. Forgiveness is free to you. Why? Because someone else paid for it. That's what Jesus Christ has done for us. He paid for it. Our salvation was costly. Ultimate sacrifice. But he paid the full and complete price. Those that have died in our place have paid with their blood for the freedom, for me to stand up here and preach. By the way, just in case you're wondering, some of these things are in jeopardy. We need to take a stand and we need to speak up. But the truth of the matter is, somebody else paid for it. But ultimately, and this is the sermon this morning, is ultimately victory. Ultimately, the freedom, ultimately, the forgiveness is all a work of God. He is the one that brings protection. He is the one that guards us. He is the one that keeps us. And I'd like to turn your attention now, if you would, to Psalm 121. It says there, 
I will lift my eye, I lift my eyes to the mountains. From whence shall come my help? My help comes from the Lord. Notice what it says. I'll lift my eyes to the mountains. And you could say, oh, well, they were looking to the mountains for their help. That's not what it says. It says they're going to look to the mountains. Why are they looking to the mountains? Because every time they went to Jerusalem, it's always, check your Bible, it's always up to Jerusalem. We think of up as north. That's not what it's talking about. Up is because Jerusalem is up in elevation. Whatever direction they came from, they had to go up to Jerusalem. And so what they're doing is they're looking ahead and they're looking up to the, the city of Jerusalem where the tabernacle, uh, I mean the temple was. And they're looking there. And then they ask the question, from whence shall my help come? It's not from a city. It's not from a temple. The answer is right there. My help comes from the Lord. Not just any generic Lord or God. The God who made heaven and earth. There are gods by all kinds of names today. It could be Allah. It could be whatever philosophy someone made up. That's the focus of their life. The truth of the matter is, only one God made heaven and earth. By the way, he made the stones that the temple was made of. He made the gold that some of the utensils were made of. He made the wood that some of it was built with. He made it all. We do not, as Romans chapter 1 tells us, worship the creation. We worship the creator who is blessed forevermore. That's where we keep our eyes. Not a hill, not a city, not a temple. It's a Savior, and He is the one. It's the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. And notice, because He made the heavens and earth, He proves His power. He proves who He is because verse 3 goes on to say, He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Now, I'm not sure how you're supposed to take all of that, but I think there's a difference between slumber and sleep. I slumber a lot of times. Ask my wife, I come home for after work and she's not quite ready for supper, I slumber. Kind of half pass out, half awake, half whatever. Not real sleep. But then again, there's the ones where I'm like, I'm dead to the world. He says, God doesn't just doze off a little bit, and God isn't totally uninvolved that he's totally out of the picture. He's always alert and aware of what's going on. I can remember, and this is, this is I put everybody's life in danger doing this, so don't think this is a great thing. But I remember, uh, others may remember some of this. I used to stay a little later at my wife's house before I was married than I should have. And on the way home, I was heading... To where I lived with my uncle at the moment and I went one night the whole way through Anvil and I don't remember I woke up at the red light in Cleona on 422 I'm telling you I was still going 15 miles an hour and I do not remember at least a mile mile and a half of road I woke up and I was in a panic because I was at a red light and I saw the red light and I turned left and I landed up in a graveyard I mean that pretty shake you up but that's what happened. You know what? I was not sleeping. I, I obviously had some control of the vehicle because I drove 
at least a mile, mile and a half. But I'll tell you what, I was slumbering. I was not coherent. God never does that. God is always alert and well and watching what is going on in our lives. He doesn't let our foot slip. Nothing happens that he doesn't know about it. In fact, this verse 5 goes on to say this. <clears throat> the Lord is our keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. I've looked at that, and I still don't know that I fully understand that. But let me give you where I'm at at the moment. I understand the sun. I was out in the sun yesterday, and I thought, boy, I better take my cap because that old bald spot gets burnt real quick. So I had my ball cap on. I kept that from getting burnt. And I knew that you have to protect yourself from the sun or you get sunburn and all kinds of other things. I understand that. But I can see around me. I can see what's going on. But I've never gotten moon burn, so this doesn't make sense. And then I realized, I think I know what the psalmist is getting ahead. You see, in the daylight, I can see the dangers, and I can see what's going on around me, and I can prepare for that. But at nighttime, I can't. Think about this. Somebody just told me this morning, I didn't sleep well last night, and I know what that reason was because I, I know the reason. But you know what? Some of the worst times in my life have been you, rec you might recognize this. It's 2 o'clock in the morning, and you wake up like that. Your adrenaline is pumping. Your eyes are blasting open. Your heart is racing, and your mind is going twice as fast as that yet. And you just can't get it to stop. The terrors by night. I believe that's what it's talking about. See, in the daylight, I can see the danger and maybe prepare for it. But at nighttime, our, our mind just is in danger of those things put our life completely out of control and God says no I'm your keeper it doesn't matter if it's in the daylight when you can see the dangers by sight or at nighttime when you just can't see those dangers I remember uh, Missy sitting down here and Faye told me it was between three four and five years old my wife is the one that always got up at nighttime with the kids except nightmares now we know where they came from eventually she would go Friday nights. This happened on like Friday nights and Saturday nights. She would go to the neighbor's house, and we didn't know that, but the neighbor kid was watching The Incredible Hulk back then. That's how long ago that was. And she got scared of The Incredible Hulk. She never told Hulk, Hulk. I'll get it out right. Um, and she would come home and have nightmares. Well, in the middle of the night, she'd come wandering over into our bedroom. I'm scared. So we'd go back. I, I'd get up. I always did. Faye never did. I, for some reason, we switched roles right there. I would go over to her bed. Do you remember this, Missy? You don't remember it. Okay, but I do. Uh, I would go over, and I would sit on the edge of her bed, and I would say, "Is can God see in the dark? And she knew all the answers because of devotions, and we had talked to her, and she went to Sunday school. She knew, well, yeah, God can see in the dark. Is God stronger than everything? Well, yes, God is strong. Is God everywhere? Yes. Is God in this room? Yes. She knew all the answers. Is, is God bigger than the boogeyman? Yes. Okay. You know what? If that's the case, we're going to pray, and we're going to thank God for being here and protecting us. I don't care if you're 3, 4, or 5, or you're 30, 40, 50, or 60, or 70, or even 90. The same principle applies. 
Up here we know it. We know God is the creator of heaven and earth. We know he's the one that doesn't sleep or slumber. We know he's the one that keeps us. We know all those things. But how about getting that into our life? You know, how about making that real? That's the hard part. And God says, no, I am there. I will guard you. In fact, this verse 7 goes on. The Lord will protect you from all evil. You underline in your Bible, underline that. All. One little word means a lot. It's not just spiritual things or emotional things or mental things or physical things. It's all encompassing. He is the God that made us. He knows us inside and out. And then notice what it says. And he will keep your soul. He will keep your soul. That is absolutely spiritual things. Because not only does he keep us in all those other realms of life, but spiritually he keeps us. I've said this many times, and I know that, it, that it's true. I, I say, if you're not sure, if you're not sure of your salvation, you, you, need to, you need to deal with that. Because God is the one, and only God, not you. He is the one that keeps us safe in our salvation. Because if you've trusted Christ, you can know that you're secure. He's the one that keeps your soul. If you're depending on you, you're in big trouble. You're in really big trouble because I know me. I don't really know you that well, but I know me. And believe me, i got enough problems that if I was God, I'd say, get rid of that guy. And you know yourself. The point is, God is the one that provided the salvation, the ultimate price, and he is the one that protects his investment. He is the one that keeps our soul. He's always done that, always will do that. In fact, as verse 8 ends this with, the Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. It's not just going up to the temple. It's not just being in God's presence in Jerusalem. It is going up or coming down. It's sleeping or awake. It's like day. It doesn't matter. It's physical. It's spiritual. It's mental. It's emotional. It doesn't matter. He is the God that keeps us safe. How how does he keep us safe? We're in his presence. That's what all of these psalms are about. I'll probably give you an update on this story in the future, but in our front yard the other week, I was watering something, and I drug the hose, and I made a bunch of noise, and right in front of our house, between our house and the street, which is not very long, there are vines. A mallard duck hen flies right out of the vines. And it landed in the neighbor's yard, didn't go too far. And I'm like, uh, they don't do that unless they've got a nest. I went over and looked, and sure enough, there were three eggs there. Uh, waited a couple days, looked in again, there were seven eggs. I don't know how many in there right now because you won't get off the nest anymore. Uh, I looked it up, and I found out that when they start incubating the eggs, they're going to be there 22 hours a day. They'll leave an hour in the morning, an hour in the afternoon, and the rest of the time they're sitting on there, and this thing is sitting tight. You can walk, and this is not exaggeration. You walk this far away, and I can actually look in because I know where to look, and I can see the head, and it's looking straight at me. And as long as I don't spook it, it stays there. I'm telling you, that duck, if you spooked it, it would fly. But it's protecting its eggs. And when the little ones are born, it's going to bring them in and it's going to call them and all those kinds of things. You know what? That's a great illustration. But it falls very, very short of what God does for us. You see, he's our keeper. He doesn't slumber. He doesn't sleep. 
That duck has to sleep. That duck has to leave and go feed and get some water and those kinds of things. God doesn't do that. He's there all the time. By the way, I'll try to pull that in another sermon in the future for an update. We'll see what happens. I don't know. My wife is already thinking some fox is going to come in there and eat them and stuff. I don't think so. The fact is, my neighbor said, better keep my dog away. And it's a little shih tzu, I think it is. I said, don't worry about the dog. That dog attacks that hen. That dog's in for a fight of its life because it isn't going to back off. And uh, he said, oh, okay. So anyway, let's go to the next one because we need to see, and a lot of times this next psalm, Psalm 122, because it fits right together because it's the safety that God is giving because of his presence, because of his work. It says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Well, it's absolutely referring to going to the temple. Remember, that's what we talked about in the last one. A lot of times people say, oh, that's about going to church. We don't live in the Old Testament. The church is not the same as Israel. But there is a principle. We are to gather together for worship and fellowship uh, with each other. But we're different because we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We can worship God anytime, anyplace, for whatever reason. But it also is clear in the New Testament that even in the church, it says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approach. In other words, the longer this world goes on, the more we need each other. That's what it says in Hebrews chapter 10. But so we do need to get together. And they said, it's glad. We're glad to be able to go to the temple and to worship and bring sacrifices. We need to look at Bible study and worship services and prayer meeting. We need to look at them that way, that it's a pleasure for us. It's a joy. It's gladness. It's a delight in our lives to be able to meet with other Christians and to come into God's presence together. And then it goes on in verse 2 to say, Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem that is built as a city that is compacted together. I looked at that and I'm like, what in the world does a city compacted together? The only things I could come up with are this. First of all, it was a city as opposed to the rural setting that most people lived in. And so houses were crammed together, compacted together. But Jerusalem, like many other cities, not all cities, but many other cities of that day, had a wall around it. You knew exactly where the boundaries of the city were. You knew exactly. And it was compacted in between there. And he's just saying, this is the place I've asked you to come in the Old Testament. And it's a city that is compacted together. And when they were going up the hill, come right up. And I'm not sure if this was the last song they sang on their way, but it sounds like it might have been. As they went in, we've arrived. We're in God's city. We're at God's temple. We're at God's presence. Because remember, in the Old Testament, God made it clear that he had chosen Israel as his people. He had also chosen that he would dwell among his people. But a holy God cannot dwell in the presence of sinful people, and sinful people can't last. They would be consumed if they were in the presence of an absolutely holy God. And so he dwelt first in the tabernacle, which was made out of skins and other assorted materials, and then in the temple, but not just in the open. In fact, is no one could even go into God's presence in the holy place, the holy of holies, 
except for once a year, and that was the high priest himself, and that was with a lot of ritual and doing exactly what God said. That's on my sermon this morning. But he was separated by three walls of separation from the people. But that's where they came to meet with God. And the people were just excited to come even into the city where the temple was. I wonder if we have that same desire and that same joy to come into God's presence. But it goes on to say in verse 4, To which of the tribes go up, even the tribes of the Lord, an ordinance for Israel to give thanks to the name of our Lord? They were, as I mentioned before, required to go to the temple three times a year. That was God's requirement of them. And they had to go with their sacrifices and and all the rest of it. All the men were absolutely required. The women could go with and the children could go with. But the men were absolutely required to make that journey. No matter where they lived in Israel, they had to go there. And it could have been quite a journey for some of those people. But they are now just joyful that they're now in the city that God prescribed that they are to go to. It was the center of all their spiritual aspect, all the spiritual aspects of Israel. God dwelt there. Praise the Lord today, those that have trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior, we have God the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. Our body has become the temple of the Holy Spirit. And just remember, when it says Jesus Christ was God who took on flesh, it says he dwelt among us. The word literally means tented or tabernacled among us. When Jesus Christ took on flesh, that flesh, the part you can see on the outside, it was like the temple. While he was dwelling among his people, he was separated from them by that veil of flesh. And that's exactly what he did because... If it wouldn't have been for that, no one could live in the presence of a perfectly holy God. It was what shielded them. By the way, I don't believe there was any halo around his head, no matter what all the artist pictures say. Uh, There wasn't. He looked like a normal, everyday Jewish man. His actions, his words are what distinguished him. His character distinguished him from all others. But let's go on. It says in verse 5, For their thrones are set for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. And then the verse that you probably have heard many times but didn't know where it was is verse 6. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. You look at that and you say, okay, hang on a second. Okay, verse 5, thrones are set up for judgment. I thought this is all about spiritual things going to the temple. That's true, except that Jerusalem was not only the spiritual center, it was the capital of Israel. It was the political center. It was the place where judgment came from. It's where the king lived. And then notice something very interesting. It says, the thrones of the house of David. Well, there's only one throne, but it's plural. And it doesn't say the the throne of David. It says, the thrones of the house of David. If you remember back to the Old Testament, you will remember that when God called David out of the line of Judah, he said, David, you are not going to fail to have a man sit on the throne, and that ultimately is going to be eternal. Only one throne, and it wasn't David's throne. It says, of the house of David. Not David himself, 
Because here's what's going to happen. It's because when we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, we are praying for the time when Jesus Christ, a son of David, in the line of David, in the line of Judah, will sit on his throne in Jerusalem. And he will rule with a scepter of iron. No fooling around here, folks. He is ruling, we'd say, with an iron fist. He is going to bring in the millennium, a time of paradise on earth for a thousand years. Now, before that, there's going to be a time of judgment called the tribulation or the great tribulation, where God is going to judge the nation of Israel one more time. And that judgment is going to be worse than the Holocaust and, and the time of Jesus when all the baby boys were killed and when um, in AD 70 when Israel, I mean, uh, Jerusalem was totally sacked and the temple tore down. It's going to be worse than all of those put together. But God is going to judge them one last time, and then he is going to return after that. Not in the rapture. That takes place to take believers from today out. But after that, he's going to return and sit on the throne of the line of David. And from there, rule the world for a thousand years. When we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, here's how it goes. There is no peace until the Prince of Peace is sitting on the throne of David in Israel. What we're praying when we pray for the peace of Jerusalem is that God would judge the world and then he would set up his kingdom. That's what we're praying. So if you want to know what that means, that's what it means. And so we are looking to the future here. The line of David was still on the throne here. But they're looking even to the future because Jerusalem has never been a city that's known peace for more than a very short time. And even when that was, it was still a standoff. Today, in case you haven't listened to the news, Israel, they're still trying to wipe Israel out. They're still saying Israel doesn't have a right to exist and we want to wipe them off the face of the earth. That's still going on and it's going to continue on until Jesus Christ himself is sitting on the throne of David. So when you pray for the peace of Jerusalem, you're praying that there will be a time that not one more soldier needs to give his life. Wow, pretty nifty. That's why I thought, wow, for Memorial Day, this fits. Because nobody wants their husband or their brother or their son coming home in a casket for a body bag. Nobody, nobody wants that. But there will be a time when that will be true. But it won't be until the Prince of Peace is ruling in the line of David. By the way, <clears throat> only one person fits that. Today, no Jewish person can prove that there are the line of Judah, the tribe of Judah, or the line of David. All those records were destroyed in AD 70. There are some that surmise that, and they might be right. But only one person has the credentials to sit on that throne. That's Jesus Christ, because we know he was of the line of David and the tribe of Judah. And there's one other thing. He was promised an eternal king to sit on the throne. Nobody else meets that one except Jesus Christ. Only Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, can do that. But here's how it ends. May peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will now say, may peace be with you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Jerusalem is indeed the key to peace in this world. Not so much because of the city or the temple there, but because of the one ruling from there. 
the one who is reigning from there, the one who is represented by that city, and that's Jesus Christ himself. No one else can do that for us, for the whole world. It's only Jesus Christ. He is the only fulfillment of everything that was done in Jerusalem, politically or spiritually. He's the only fulfillment of one who can eternally rule on the throne of David. No one else can do that. I challenge you today. We all desire safety, security, stability in our lives. Only one place to get it. Only one person who can give it. The ultimate price has been paid. It's available. It's fully, fully paid. You can't earn it and you can't pay for it, but you can, by faith, trust Jesus Christ. He will forgive your sin. He will give you new life and will give you a home in heaven and the privilege of ruling and reigning when indeed there is peace in Jerusalem. Let's all stand together as we close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are so clear. I know today uh, it's being said that uh, 